I'm speaking on behalf of my wife, Molly, also myself. It is such an honor to be with you this morning. Thank you for the warm welcome. Um, got to meet a lot of people on their way out, some of you on the way in. If I didn't get to meet you, I hope that we get to connect um, after the service today before we head back to Eden Prairie. Uh, but thank you so much. Um, it's an honor to be here. It's an honor for Prairie Hill. Um, my home church, the church that I pastor, to get to host um, Pastor Brent this morning and hear his voice and um, the passion that the Lord has given him for Jesus Christ. And so just a great day all the way around. Um, let's dig into the word. I do want to invite you to find Matthew chapter 18, um, if you've got a Bible with you. Matthew 18. Um, it's enjoyable to be able to enter into the stream of life where you are right now as a church, studying this summer biblical foundations, all these different areas of life. What does the Bible have to say about this issue? What's a biblical perspective on that issue? And so today um, we're continuing that series right through. We've come to, okay, what does the Bible say about how to handle conflict and forgiveness? Um, so I've gotten the really fun assignment. Um, I think providentially, it, it's, this is a really good one for a visiting pastor to get to address. Because whatever I say and whatever I say that might rub you the wrong way, or you know, it, when you actually have the conflict, I'm gone, right? So you will deal that with that yourselves, and however I mess it up is not going to be part of it. So um, it, it can feel a little bit um, self-serving as a pastor to address this issue with one's own congregation. You know, do it this way when this happens. So to have an outside voice come in, I think maybe that'll work out okay. Okay, well, let's get to it. Um, really important subject, also a subject I think we can all relate to and have experience with. Um, chances are good if you have been part of a church for any significant period of time. You've seen conflict um, handled poorly. Um, hopefully you've also seen it handled well. So we all bring some experience in this area to the table as we enter into this conversation. Um, our goal here this morning is to notice um, the direction that Jesus sends us in terms of how to handle these things as a church. So let's read the text first. Um, it's kind of a lengthy text, about 20 verses or so. Um, and then um, I'd like to pray to ask for the Lord's help, and then we'll get into it. So we're going to begin in verse 15. We're in Matthew chapter 18, and we'll read through the end of the chapter. All right, this is, this is the word of God. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you in him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me? And I forgive him. As, men, as many as seven times. 
Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy times seven. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Okay, I'll just pause here for a moment and do a a parenthetical comment for us because we don't use um, this terminology in our our context. One talent, okay, we're talking about 10,000 here, right? One talent is 20 years worth of wages. It's the amount of money that you could make at your job over a 20-year period. That's one talent, okay? And we're talking about 10,000 talents. So 200,000 years of work would earn you this amount of money. That's how much he owed. So this is Jesus' way of telling us, like, basically infinite, right? An amount that's laughable to actually be able to pay. Zillions and zillions, okay? Back to the text. Um, And since he could not pay, this is verse 25, since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. Okay, so another pause here so we can calibrate what this looks like. So one denarius is a day's wages. Okay, so this guy owed him a hundred denarii. So the amount of money you'd make working for about a hundred days, like a third of the year. Okay, so now do you see the comparison? The amount of money you'd make in a third of a year is what was owed to him. He had just been forgiven a debt of 200,000 years worth of work. All right? It's like a million dollars to one dollar. That's, that's the scale we're talking about here. Verse 28. Um, and seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. And his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Father, we do ask for your help now. This is, um, this is all for your sake. As we do want to be excellent at these things. There's so much writing on us doing this well, on handling conflict and forgiveness well. Our children's faith depends on this. Our, the faith of our children's children and their view of the church and of Christians, there's, there's just so much writing on whether we handle our business well in this area. Generations are impacted. So, Help it to really sink down and sink into our hearts this morning, even if we've heard this a hundred times before.
Uh, please let this be a day where it takes root to a greater degree. We ask in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Well, I think at the outset here, it, it's going to be worth um, taking some time to think about how um, we typically handle conflict and forgiveness. Um, what just a normal person does in this area, let's just say, maybe to put us all in a specific spot, let's say how Midwesterners typically handle conflict and forgiveness, okay? We're all in that boat, at least. What do we typically do? I think we can identify two kind of opposite things that we do naturally in this area when there's been an offense between us and another person. I think, first of all, there's a tendency to um, spread something, and there's a tendency to, to hold something. There's a, a spreading tendency that we have, and there's a holding tendency that we have. We're just talking about our natural selves, our, our fleshly selves, and what we do just naturally. Here's what I mean about a spreading tendency. When we're having a conflict with another person, and someone, let's just say someone has wronged us, right? The natural tendency is to try to um, actively broadcast that news as loudly as possible. To tell other people, hey, listen to what so-and-so did to me. How I've been hurt, what's been done to me, how bad this other person is. Um, we try to gather people onto our team to get their support against this other person. Um, you know how it is, um, what we do with social media, how if we have a bad experience at a store or a restaurant or wherever, hop on there, tag the place, tell everybody out there watching and looking how, how bad this organization it is. De definitely don't eat there, definitely don't shop there because look at what they did to me. So we spread the news, we share the hurt, we publicly shame the offender. That's the spreading tendency that we have in the midst of, of conflict and, and pain. Then there's this other kind of tendency that we have that I'm calling a holding tendency, where it sometimes feels really good to just hold on to the hurt, like to, to nourish it in our heart, and develop a, um, a victim mentality, and to keep feeding that over time. How, how much wrong has been done to us, how, how wounded we've been by a person or by a group. So we like to spread in a sense, and we like to hold in a sense. And I've been guilty of both of those things. I fight those tendencies all the time. Um, I wonder if you can also identify with those tendencies. Maybe you're actively pursuing one or both of those today. If we look at both of those things together, here's what we could say about, in, in summary, about those things, this spreading and this holding. They're, they're both oriented toward self-enrichment. When we do those things, we're attempting to enrich ourselves. See, when we're broadcasting the news, when we're spreading the news, our goal is to gain supporters. When we hold on to the wrong that's been done to us, we're trying to gain sympathy. And both of those things, like supporters and sympathy, like that's a lot of currency for us to hold. That can, that can get us a long ways if we've got supporters and we've got sympathy. You know, then that can really get us somewhere and get the reactions that we want from people. 
It's all oriented towards self-enrichment. Now, this is not a surprise. Like, we're human beings. We're sinful. We're fallen human beings. So, of course, we should expect self-enrichment in these situations. And we are always looking for how we can enrich ourselves. This is the most Matt Brandt thing ever, right? Self-enrichment. How can I take this situation and enrich myself through it and get what I want? Hopefully, it's a human thing. And what we're noticing today together is that Jesus shows us another way. He shows us a different way. So um, at Prairie Hill right now, the the church that I pastor in Eden Prairie, uh, we've been studying the Gospel of Luke for about two years. We're getting toward the end. Um, Week by week, what we're trying to do every week is take the text and say, okay, how does this text show us how we're to live distinctly as Christians? Like, how should we be different from the world based on what we read today? So we're making micro-adjustments week by week because we've entered a new kingdom, the kingdom of God. We've met the risen living Jesus Christ. Now, how should we be different because of that? How should we be distinct? And so today we know for sure, like we've come to an area of our lives where we should be really distinct, right, in this area of conflict and forgiveness. So let's get into it and find out, okay, well, what exactly are we supposed to do? If we're not supposed to spread the news, we're not supposed to hold on to hurt, what what does Jesus want us to do? So let's look at what the text says. Here's the broad outline. I've got one overarching goal, one, one big picture goal that we should pursue, and then there are two specifics of how we should try to get there, all right? So in this area, how do we handle conflict and forgiveness? The the overarching goal for how to handle these things is care for the body. This whole passage, this whole long passage that we read, all of it moves toward the goal of restoring relationships. Right? That big long section about forgiveness, it's there because we want relationships to be restored. That shorter passage at the beginning about going to a person who's sinned against us and all these steps that we go through, that's because we're interested in relationships being restored. So already we see how distinct, how different this is from what we naturally do. Like, the goal is not self-enrichment anymore. The goal is to care for the body. I want to pause at this point and just ask you if, you if you really have internalized the truth that this church is the body of Christ. Like, have you really meditated on that and understood, like, what that means practically? That this is the body of Christ, the, the spiritual body of Christ. Does that mean anything to you? If this church is the body of Christ, it's impossible to be too careful with it. It's impossible to be too concerned about the constituent parts of it. That that lays a huge responsibility on all of us to deal with our issues quickly and gently and with wisdom and um, deference to other people and giving the benefit of the doubt 
And we have to ask ourselves if we're no better at dealing with conflict than like any other service club that's out there or any other country club, whatever club, like in whatever they would, however they would handle conflict. Is there anything different about how we do it? Because this is the body of Christ. This is, is it a really big statement? I hope it's true. I think it's true. In my observation, it's been true. All ongoing church conflict really is a deficiency in ecclesiology. Ecclesiology is just a fancy term for the study of the church and asking, like, what is the church? All ongoing church conflict, just unresolved issues and conflict and factions, is really a problem. It's poor ecclesiology. It's not understanding that this is the body of Christ. We don't get to do whatever we want to do. We don't let, like, disease or, like, if I have a disease or pain or a problem with my physical body, or if you have a problem with your physical body, body we don't just let it go. Like, we address that thing quickly. So how much more so do we need to address things quickly and not let disease and pain take hold in the body of Christ? Okay, that's the, that's the theological understanding. That's the big picture. That's kind of setting, like, the reason why these things are important. Okay, we're going to talk about two specific things. That kind of sets the, the seriousness level. That's like why this is so important. Because we're told in Ephesians 1, this is the body of Christ. Okay, two specifics, two ways that we pursue care for the body. Right? It's the two things that are mentioned here in the passage that we read. First of all, the shorter section, <clears throat> verses 15 to 20. How are we to be different? One way we're to be different is that we're to practice radical discretion. Radical discretion. We're to be as discreet as possible in handling situations where there is a sin between ourselves and some other person. And in other words, if we say it differently, we, um, we keep the circle small. We keep the, the circle of knowledge about who knows about the situation. We keep it really small. Notice the key word in verse 15, one of the key words. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Alone. That's a really small circle. And that's really different from the world. It's different than the way the world does it, right? We're not broadcasting the news anymore. We're not gaining supporters and gaining people on our team. You and him alone. Because when we bring other people in, we try to gather support for our cause, now we're pitting other people in the church against this other group of people in the church because this group supports Dave and this group support, supports Greg. And now people who didn't have a problem with each other before, now they're involved in the fight. So now the disease is spreading. We don't want to draw other people in. So we keep the circle small out of care for the body. Does that make sense? Notice the, what I would say is the other key word in the passage, which is the word go. So that counters our tendency to want to just hold on to the hurt and never address it because that has a negative effect on the body as well. There's this festering, simmering, under-the-surface resentment between people if we just hold on to it. And the text doesn't let us do that either. If you've been wounded by someone, if someone has sinned against you, go, address it. So Christ confronts both our spreading tendency and our holding tendency. 
Then we find out, verse 16, if that initial step doesn't work, if you go alone and there's no repentance, there's no restoration, then we broaden the circle a little bit. If he does not listen, take one or two others along with you. So still keeping the circle as small as possible. If that still doesn't work, verse 17, tell it to the church. That's a bigger circle. And if he doesn't listen to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. In other words, an outsider. Let him be to you as an outsider. He becomes someone with no part in the fellowship. Now that's kind of hard, isn't it? None of us like the idea of excluding someone from the fellowship of the church. Like, why would a church ever do that, right? Isn't this supposed to be a place where... You know, everyone's embraced, yes, and everyone's loved, yes, and no one's left out. Well, yes, but in this situation, when someone has demonstrated over and over and over by refusing to repent of their sin, refusing to restore the relationship, that we're to cut them loose. Because no one person is more important than the whole body. Like their desire to be included, their desire to continue to be part of the fellowship, that's not more important than the health of the body. The health of the body is paramount. So if someone has demonstrated over and over and over, I don't care about relationships being made whole here. Well, sometimes health happens because of restoration. And if you'll excuse the crude term, sometimes through amputation. If a person refuses to work toward health, that's a really hard truth. Our part is to show care for the body through exercising this radical discretion and keeping the circle small, so different from the world. So, I just put that question to you. Have you made that practice part of your Christian walk? Have you developed those instincts to say, okay, when something happens between me and another person, I gotta keep the circle small. I don't want this to spread is your first instinct, care for the body, not enrichment of yourself. I just want to add one more thing in this regard, and then we'll move on to the, the second specific way that we care for the body. Um, <clears throat> just to add this quick point, because I, I have seen this be an issue um, several times recently um, in, in pastoring a church. Um, not, not just the church I'm at now, but the church I was at before that. And you may have seen this too. This may have happened to you where someone is trying to be faithful to Matthew 18, right? They're, they're, someone has sinned against them. They're trying to go to that person and have a conversation and explain where there's been sin so there can be restoration, right? They're taking the right steps, but the other person refuses to sit down with them, just won't come to the table, to try to restore the relationship. And I am begging you, when someone comes to you and says, hey, there's, um, there's an issue between us, I care about you, I just need to talk to you about this sin issue that's developed between us. I am begging you to be willing to go to the table and talk with them about it. And not short circuit this process, because there's nothing that can be done. I've had people come to me and say, what do I do? The other person won't meet with me. There's nothing that can be done. A Christian should always be willing to come to the table to, to talk, 
to try to restore the relationship. And if it's too hard to think about meeting with that one person, bring one or two other people with you. Bring whatever support you need to have that conversation. I'm just begging you to care for the body that way and not walk away from the table before you've tried. All right, second specific thing is we think about caring for the body. And this, I'm going to blow through this one because um, I felt like it was more important to spend some good time on discretion today. But the second one is radical forgiveness. And this is the long parable um, about the, the servants and the talents, all those things, verses 21 to 35. I'm going to assume that this one about being a forgiving person is not a surprise to you that you know that as a Christian, forgiveness is important. The point here in the parable about forgiveness is that we are to forgive our brothers and sisters in accordance with the radical forgiveness that has been shown to us by God in God forgiving our sins. It's really easy to see in the parable that the man forgiven this near infinite amount of debt was just ridiculous and scandalous in not forgiving this puny, this comparatively puny debt. Jesus wants to show us just how ridiculous and scandalous it is for us to refuse to forgive our brothers and sisters when God has forgiven us this infinite debt that we could never repay. Now, in the moment, it feels really hard. Like, it doesn't feel easy. Like, we, it, we, we really can't in the moment think. It's not, ma- it's not mathematics. It's not like we can say, okay, I've been forgiven this huge, infinite debt. Now, this relatively minor thing has been done to me, so I need to forgive it, right? That's, that's mathematics. But it doesn't feel that way. It feels like we're forgiving a really big thing because those wounds are deep and hard. And that's why we need the scriptures to tell us the truth that it really is puny compared to what God has forgiven us. And we really do look ridiculous, and it is scandalous when we don't forgive. In light of this uncalculable debt that we've been forgiven by God and Jesus Christ. Now, the one thing I do want to point out is this, this little modifying phrase at the end of verse 35. If you've got a, a copy of the scriptures, I, I just draw your attention to the very last words of um, Matthew 18, where um, this, this little phrase at the very end, from your heart. This is verse 35. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. See, forgiveness is described and modified there. Not only forgive, but from your heart. See, this is a a considered restorative forgiveness that invites and hopes for ongoing future relationship. Remember, the goal is care for the body. So we are to forgive our brothers and sisters in such a way and in such a manner that it invites ongoing, close relationship. So the question is, can you forgive in that way? 
in a way that says, yeah, I wouldn't mind seeing you again tomorrow. I wouldn't mind seeing you regularly. Because why do we do that? Because that is what God has done for us. God does not forgive us in a cold, cursory way where he just forgives our sins but then says, I hope I don't ever have to see you again. It's this warm forgiveness that we get from God whereby he invites us into ongoing, intimate, personal relationship. Like he wants to be close to us. That's the quality of forgiveness that we have received from God. He wants us to draw closer. So that's how we need to forgive others as well. Now, that's really, really hard. I'm just saying, that's really hard for me. Because I can think in my mind, I forgave that person, but do I want to see him again? Not really. I'd like to practice the kind of forgiveness that just lets me write people off and kind of check the box that, yeah, I forgave. From your heart. Kind of relation, what kind of forgiveness has God offered you? It's the kind that says, I, I hope I get to see you again tomorrow. We can't do any of these things on our own. It's not natural. Only the Holy Spirit can produce this kind of life in a person. Only a dependence on the Holy Spirit will empower this kind of a distinct life in you. I think it's wonderful that we have the communion elements um, today, these, these tangible symbols of God's restorative, inviting forgiveness. Like, you get to come forward and take the elements. Like, you're invited to the table. That's what this is all about. Like, you're forgiven and you're invited. Like, come get the food. Physical symbol, this is true. And we get to do that today. If, if you have not received Jesus Christ, I'm so excited for the opportunity that you have today, the opportunity that's still before you to receive God's restorative forgiveness in Jesus Christ because God wants relationship with you. You, yes, I know, you feel guilty, ashamed, sinful, unworthy. None of that stuff is a barrier anymore to being with God. That's why he sent Jesus Christ, to be the perfect one, to, to live the life that you failed at. Jesus came for that purpose, to die for your sin, to live the perfect life, so you could be reconciled to God. This is all grace. The way is completely open to you. Please consider these things. Examine in your heart and see if these things are so. Receive Jesus Christ and then join this community that's trying to live distinctly to give Jesus glory for the, the wonders of this grace that he has brought to us. Lord, in these moments, may um, your good and faithful word take root in our hearts. May our hearts be good soil. We admit we're prone to rejecting the word when it feels hard and feels too, too counter to what we want to do. May it not be that way today. May it sink in and, and take root so we can bear good fruit for you. In Jesus' name, amen.